Coming up, the Mitsubishi Pajero Sport Exceed. Is it the sweet spot for family adventuring, all-terrain driving, little bit of towing, and also getting you and the kids to the school and the shops, which, let's not forget, is gonna be, however you cut this up, the bulk of its duty. I'm John Cadogan from autoexpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap for buyers here in Australia. Website for that? <coughs> Seriously! Or you can just click the card that's up there now, dude. Okay, so this is a question from a dude named Matt O'Brien. It came in overnight, and I think a lot of people are potentially in this predicament, trying to decide between an MUX and a Fortuna and an Everest and a Pajero Sport and going burdened by choice, in other words. So let's get into that. I have really enjoyed watching your YouTube content. Well, thank you, Matt. I have been neck deep in researching for the best family caravan towing vehicle, which is also family-oriented brackets four, meaning presumably family 04. Comfortable and four-wheel drive capable, at the moment I'm leaning towards the Pajero Sport Exceed. I'm certainly open to suggestions. Aren't we all? It just depends who's suggesting, I guess. My budget is around the 60000 buck mark. I'm currently living and working in Abu Dhabi, but I will be home permanently in mid-July. Sorry to hear that, Matt. Coming back to the global laughingstock of Australia. Who wouldn't want to do that? I would love to step off the plane and into a vehicle. Mm, interesting time to want that. Uh, thanks for your time, Matt O'Brien. So let's unpack all of that, shall we? To start with... Pajero Sport Exceed, like there are alternatives, but I really like family wagons that offer all-wheel drive capability. In other words, the ability to operate with all four wheels doing the driving on a high traction surface. So, and that kind of rules out Fortuna and uh, MUX and vehicles of that nature, doesn't it? Because they've got the old prehistoric four-wheel drive system that Mike and Mal Leyland used to use all of those years ago. You simply cannot engage 4H without the drivetrain being locked up. In other words, without the front and rear prop shaft being synchronised. And if you do that on a high traction surface, you risk transmission damage through the phenomenon called wind-up. So I kind of like Everest for this and I kind of like Pajero Sport for this because you can operate in 4H on a high traction surface because there's a centered differential, right? So that's nice, but when it comes to Everest, I try so hard to like it, but there's two things holding me back, right? Long-term use, particularly with towing with Everest, seems to be problematic. It doesn't seem to be a particularly durable vehicle when the Ks get sort of north of 80 or 100,000 or something, and EGR system failures are common, and when that happens, it has the potential to destroy the whole engine. And also the transmission doesn't seem to be holding up that well. I'm talking the 3.2 diesel six-speed transmission arrangement with Everest, right? Doesn't seem to be that durable for big K towing kind of applications, right? And if you're gonna have the vehicle for several years, then this is a consideration. I guess if you're gonna just own it for three or four years and then go again, well, maybe it's gonna be the next owner's problem. So there's that. Whichever though, 
you're also up against the general Ford customer don't care apparatus, right? They're not that good at customer care. Whereas Mitsubishi is a step up from Ford in both of those things. I don't get any durability complaints about Pajero Sport Exceed or any other model. And I don't get too many complaints about Mitsubishi throwing customers under the bus. And I own a Mitsubishi, I own a Triton, which is kind of the ute version of Pajero Sport with some significant differences like the transmission and the rear suspension. But it's been really good, even though I frankly haven't driven it as much as I otherwise might if we hadn't had an inconvenient pandemic for the past couple of years. So what I'm suggesting is that on, on these criteria, like long-term durability, customer care, things of that nature, and also just general niggly complaints and value, let's not forget. Pajero Sport is really good. Now I'm looking at Pajero Sport Exceed. I did some research, I know, setting a dangerous precedent just before pressing record. It's 64,384 bucks drive away in New South Wales. And it'll be broadly similar around the country. So with a bit of negotiation, you'll get into one for 60 grand and that'll meet your budget and that's good. So in my view, the best features about Pajero Sport are the rear coils, which means unladen, it's going to ride better than the Triton from which it's derived. Coil springs are just better at a variety of different conditions, in particular with light loads. So that's good. It's got an eight-speed auto versus the Triton six-speed auto, so you'll get more ratios available for sort of more duties, okay? More different driving conditions is one way to look at it. And the eight-speed actually gives you two overdrives, like six gear in the eight-speed is one-to-one, like it's essentially top gear plus two overdrives. And the second overdrive is 0.6 something to one. So it's significantly overdriven, meaning at low load conditions on the highway, you're gonna be ticking over at very low revs and presumably deriving pretty good fuel efficiency in that situation, right? So there's that. The Super Select 2 transfer case allows you to just rotate the dial and select 4H on a high traction surface. And by that, I mean twisty, wet, bitumen road, okay? Taking the kids and mum on an adventure out there somewhere, it rains, the road is second rate, and it's bitumen, but it's still got reasonably high traction, even when it's wet. You can't select 4H in most vehicles that are all-terrain capable in that situation, but you can in an Everest and a Pajero Sport, and it transmits the drive to the front end as well as the back, and that will reduce the risk of wheel spin from, say, accelerating out of a corner, okay? It just splits the torque transfer and makes it harder to overwhelm the available grip on the tires in these situations. Ditto with dirt roads, okay? You can just see a dirt road coming up, up ahead, just select 4H and with the center diff, unlocked and you can drive all day long like that and it'll just feel more stable. So that's a, a huge plus in my view for a vehicle that's gonna be subjected to this breadth of capability kind of challenge, right? You've also got the support culture which I talked about and the warranty and the cap price servicing. So the way that works with Mitsubishi is if you get your car serviced at a Mitsubishi dealer, in addition to the standard five-year warranty, they'll add another five years on top of that, and you'll get the cap price servicing. Just get it serviced at the dealer and on time if you want to take advantage of that. So that's all plus. 
In terms of its 4x4, yes, capability, it's grossly more capable in this sort of all-terrain off-road situations than most of the people driving Pajero Sport, even people who actually go adventuring, which, let's face it, is a pretty small proportion of people who own this vehicle. Most people just use them like big family station wagons. However, if you do want to engage low range, climb up a rough ascent or drive through a creek or something of that nature, then it is going to be quite capable at that. And it's also reasonable to drive at other times, which you don't get all the time with many vehicles that are all-terrain capable. So it's got 30-degree approach, 24-degree departure angle, 218 millimetres of clearance, and a 700 millimetre weighting depth, all of which makes it look pretty good on paper for family-type off-road adventuring. If you want to be a proper blue singlet nut and see if you can break something, then yeah, dude, you can. You can break something. But... A couple of pointers there, if you're going to do that and you're not used to doing it, I would absolutely get some training because a lot of uh, all-terrain driving is a little counterintuitive, like you don't need a run-up to go up a steep hill, quite the opposite in many situations, all right? And you need to know where to use the various modes. It's got terrain selection modes, but you also need to know in what conditions is low range applicable and how do I tackle things like creek crossings and how do I tackle things like steep, rocky, rough ascents and descents and how do I recover when I'm halfway up a hill and, you know, these things aren't particularly intuitive, pro tip, if you fail to climb a big fuck off hill, do not attempt to turn around on the hill, you must reverse down and you've got to do it in gear, in low range reverse so that you've got control and this stuff is not intuitive. Okay, you've got to get training if you want to do that. Now, the other kinds of things I'd suggest here is that low range in that vehicle is about 2.6 to 1. Okay, so to put that in perspective, what it means is that third gear in low range is roughly the same as first gear in high range. So when you select low range, you've got two more ratios effectively that are lower than first gear in high range. And that really does let you walk over rough obstacles, really inch forward. And let's not forget, it's automatic and you've got a torque converter. So you've got the benefit of that slip as well between the crankshaft and the transmission. So you really can inch forward when you need to. And that is so important if you don't want to break something. So yeah, for off-road ability, that vehicle will go places most families would just never dream of going missed it by that much. Now, as for stepping off a plane in July and walking into that car, dude, that might be possible, but you've really got to act now because we're only talking four months away, yeah? And six-month delays on new cars are very common right at the moment. I just looked at the uh, sales figures for February, which were released yesterday, I think. Anyway, the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries does that. They're the car industry's dirty little lobby group in and bruh, and uh, they say that 85,340 vehicles were sold in February. Excuse me a moment, it's like 150% humidity and it's just, Noah couldn't take these conditions. Anyway, uh, they say that that represents a 1.6% increase on February of the previous year, 2021, okay? So 
nothing has improved essentially, 1.6% is nothing. Federal Chamber Chief Executive Tony Webber, one of my favourite lobby group operatives, said the news was positive, doesn't he always, given supply chains are still not fully stabilised from the impacts of the pandemic. Well, it's not supply chain stabilisation that's a problem, right? It's the car industry globally acting like card-carrying cocks to chip manufacturers and chip manufacturers seeing an alternative to make more money selling better chips elsewhere to businesses that don't try to screw them over so hard. That's why new cars aren't as available because the chip manufacturers are busy making chips that make them more money elsewhere and they have not yet ramped up their manufacturing capability and bean counting car maker assholes have allowed their businesses to be vulnerable to disruptions of this nature. So this is the car industry shooting itself in the cock again in my view it's got nothing to do with the pandemic although the pandemic has probably amped up these commercial conditions to some extent okay. Mr. Weber goes on and says, global supply chains for microprocessor units are still some distance from full recovery. <laughs> so we are pleased to see this small increase on 2021 figures. It's the same. Dude, if you get 50% in an exam, your performance is shit. And if you get 51.6% a year later, your performance is still shit. This is that, okay? This is how the car industry is rolling. They say the consumer demand for new cars in Australia remains strong and manufacturers are continuing to work hard to get cars into the hands of motorists. That's not strictly speaking true either. The car industry's just sitting there and copping it on the chin like a boxer on the ropes who's totally defensive, right? They can't do anything. They're just sitting there and waiting and just spewing bullshit, which is what they do. So anyway, just getting back to these inquiries here, I want to talk to you quickly about towing with this vehicle because there is this towing scenario, okay? And you've got to be conservative about this and realistic. And I've crunched the numbers, right? The curb weight of a Pajero Sport Exceed is 2,125 kilos. The gross vehicle mass is 2,775. The gross combination mass is 5,565. And the payload, therefore, which is what you get when you get the GVM and you take away the curb weight, the payload is 665. Now, if you want to make notes on this, just go back, jot down the numbers. You can confirm the calculations for yourself, but it rolls like this, okay? The tow capacity is 3,100 kilos and the download limit on the tow ball is 310, which is 10% of the tow capacity. So if you tow 3.1 tonnes with this vehicle, which I do not suggest you do because the van is going to be grossly heavier than the vehicle, vans and trailers and all those pig trailer configuration things that we like to tow in Australia and overseas as well, they're intrinsically unstable in yaw, which is rotation like this, which you have to do to go around a bend, and also in pitch, which is what happens when you accelerate and brake, okay? Intrinsically unstable, despite having multiple axle groups in the centre. They've got all these overhangs, so they're easy to disturb. Not so much in roll, which is like this, because the wheels are outboard, right? But pitch and yaw they're prone to instability in those planes of rotation, right? So if they get disturbed, it's hard to get them back. And the thing keeping them from being disturbed is the inertia of the vehicle. So if the mass of the towed 
thing, like the trailer, is significantly greater than the mass of the vehicle. The inertia of the trailer is bigger than the inertia of the vehicle, and it's easier for the inertia of the trailer to overcome the resistive capability of the inertia of the vehicle. And intrinsically, I would not tow anything heavier than two to two and a half tonnes with vehicles of this nature, despite the fact that asshole manufacturers put the capability on paper significantly higher than they should, in my engineering estimation. You know, if you want to be conservative and safe and you max out the tow capacity, you are a Muppet, okay? That's how this rolls. And you can be a Muppet unwittingly. I'm not having a shot at you. I'm just suggesting do not use the manufacturer's tow capability, maximum capability, as some yardstick of what is a good idea because in this case, they're two vastly different things, right? So if you do max out the tow capacity and you put 310 kilos on the ball, the download, you've only got 340 kilos of remaining payload for the family and all the stuff, okay? That means accessories, luggage, personal items, all of that stuff. You've only got 340 kilograms before you max out the gross combination mass. You can crunch the numbers yourself based on the ones that I just told you, or you can look it up for yourself. That 340 actually drops to about 300 when you fit the tow bar, because the tow bar is an accessory and it probably weighs about 40 kgs, okay? So you want to fit four people and their stuff into 300 kilos? It's just, it's not doable. Okay, so. I investigated what a reasonable limit for towing might be if you've got a family of four and you want to hook up a Pajero Sport. And I'd suggest that it's ethically reprehensible that hardly anyone else does this. Certainly the people selling caravans and things of that nature and the people selling vehicles never do this kind of assessment because it makes their vehicles look less capable, right? But let's just say you've got a couple of adults with personal items, total mass of 200 kilos for two adults and their stuff in the vehicle, all right? Then you've got two kids with personal items for 120 kilos. So I've used 100 kilos per adult, including their stuff, and 60 kilos per kid, because they might be big strapping teenagers, including their stuff. That's conservative, all right? Now, you are going to blow 320 kilos there just with people and their stuff. You're going to have to fit the tow bar. That's 40 kilos. And you're going to fit some accessories, right? If you're going to go adventuring, you're going to carry stuff and you're probably going to fit, I don't know, a roof rack and an awning and maybe a bull bar and a winch, whatever. But I've said, let's keep the accessories budget down to 100 kilos, Okay. You're going to need water. You shouldn't go into the bush in Australia without some water in case, you know, worst case scenario, you get stuck out there for a while. You're a long way from a drink. It's 40 degrees, 20 litres. You probably need more than 20 litres if you're a long way from support. But let's just say you're away for a weekend. Someone might be along soon. 20 litres. You wouldn't want less than that. That's going to be 20 kilos. And then you're going to need to carry first aid, recovery gear, tools, sat phone, a UHF, CB type radio, you're gonna need comms of some description and you need this support stuff, probably a fire extinguisher as well. That's not a bad idea and a fire blanket in the car. If we said 50 kilos for all of that, 
a shovel, you might want a bit of a jack upgrade so that if you do get stuck, you can pump one wheel into the air and do a bit of road building underneath, like 50 kilos, good luck fitting all of that into a 50 kilo budget, but let's say you can. The total of all of that is 530 kilos. That's just people, stuff, minimum required in the vehicle to go off down some track without a van, okay? That leaves you with 135 kilos, okay, worth of payload. And you gotta remember that the GVM, when you're towing something, the download on the tow ball is part of the GVM, right? So if you've got 135 kilos to quote unquote spare, then that can be devoted to tow ball download of a camper trailer or something of that nature. So let's suggest that that might be a 1500 kilo camper trailer that's the ATM of the van, like the aggregate trailer mass of the van, with a 9% download for 135 kilos. And the 9% download's high enough to deliver reasonable stability because you do want a bit of preload, like static preload on the tow ball so that you don't get the death wobbles when you get into some sort of transitional yaw arrangement, you know, going around a bend or changing something minor. You don't want to amplify the pendulum effect in yaw and suddenly have the trailer overtake the vehicle. And that's why you need the download, okay? So I'd suggest that this is a decent idea. Pajero Sport's gonna fit the budget, it's gonna go off-road. It's gonna be able to do limited towing with those people on board. But let's not have any delusional fantasy about towing more than 1,500 kilos when you attempt to do that. And I'm in the honesty business, right? Not the appeasement business, because the facts don't give a shit, right? If you're out there on the highway overloaded, that's illegal, it's dangerous, etc. And I don't wanna see anybody in that position, but I sure as shit guarantee that that kind of tow limit recommendation is not in the brochure or anywhere else.